Welcome to Season 1 of the National Film Pod of Canada, the podcast with a different take on the movies. My name is George Kaplan. In this episode, I will start talking about the early history of Canadian movies. But first, I will give you a brief overview of the whole season. In season one, I'll start with the history of Canadian cinema by discussing a book written about the early days of movies in Canada called Embattled Shadows by Peter Morris. It covers the years 1895 to 1939. Unfortunately, I have to talk about Hollywood also and the American film industry simply because it plays a role in Canada and because ignoring it is impossible. So, but I only give an ev- overview of what is called the old Hollywood in order to contrast it with the, what was happening in Canada at that time. The contrast between the two is pretty much black and white. And to help me in that, I'll review a book about the early Hollywood days called The Hollywood Studio System by Douglas Gomery. I'll only give a short intro to Hollywood history of the past because there's already been enough said about it already in book and podcast form. I kind of assume that people interested in listening to a podcast like this, I already know a lot about it anyway, but my take will be slightly different when it comes to Hollywood history. In season one, I will not be talking about the past all the time. I will talk about the present situation in Canada in order to show how far we have come since the beginning. A hint, it's not that far. Of course, I'll be talking about present-day Hollywood also, again to make a contrast between the two industries and to show how much Hollywood has evolved over the century. Hint, it's not that much. Mixed up with these two narratives, I'll add some extra episodes to add more context and some variety. So, let's get started. As mentioned previously, for season one, I will start talking about the early days of Canadian films using, for reference, a book written by Canadian film scholar Peter Morris. But before getting into it, here is a short bio of Peter Morris. Morris was born in Britain in 1937. After earning a Bachelor of Science at the University of Nottingham in 1958, Morris married his first wife, Margaret, and they moved to Canada. He continued his chemistry studies at the University of British Columbia, but soon realized that film interested him more than chemistry. After achieving his Master's of Science in 1961, he shifted to the study of Canadian film. Shortly thereafter, he moved with his family to Ottawa to become the founding curator of the Canadian Film Archive. His scholarly work continued, and he soon became editor of the Canadian Journal of Film Studies, the country's leading academic peer-reviewed journal in the field. In 1978, he published and Battle Shadows, A History of Canadian Cinema, 1895-1939, which was reprinted in 1992. In 1984, Morris published The Film Companion, a quick-read encyclopedia. In 1988, 
Morris accepted a professorship with York University's Department of Film in Toronto. During his tenure, he was coordinator of the Fine Arts Cultural Studies Department. Morris then retired from teaching in 2002. Before he died, he was working on a manuscript tentatively called A Passion Delayed on Canadian film and television, 1939-1968. Here is a quote from Peter Morris. Quote, It might be interesting to speculate why we, as Canadians, have ignored our own history, why, in the case of film, we have even assumed that there is no history worth considering. Unquote. And now, the history of early Canadian film. Chapter 1. Came to Dawn In Ottawa, Ontario, there were these uh, business people called the Holland Brothers, and they were the ones with the privilege of giving Canada's first movie showing. After that, lots of theaters in Canada were opened, mainly by former traveling showmen. Uh, film programs in those theaters lasted about 20 minutes, to about an hour and included like 10-minute dramas, comedies, and travelogues. Uh, and sometimes, sometimes there were even singers, like in the variety show. Films were shown in cities, but also in faraway north locations. The movies appealed to most Canadians, but not all of them. So-called educated people considered movies vulgar, low-class entertainment. Newspapers almost entirely ignored the early movies finding them undignified. But regular people ignored that and flocked to the movies anyway. And the early theaters were Canadian-owned, but few showed Canadian movies. The typical origins of films from then were about 60% American, 40% British, French, and other countries. In the years before 1914, few Canadians produced films. And the only image of Canada on movie screens were the typical landscapes, scenes of our natural world that we know all about. Even those scenes, although those scenes were filmed by foreign film crews. Now, at this stage, I think I have to put in a comment. You know, we're only on chapter one, and it's a, a very short chapter, but I, I have to put in my little two cents worth because when I first read this chapter, it was kind of done on me something which I guess the author didn't bring up. So this is just my own comment. And that the Holland brothers, like their first impulse was to buy a print or prints of movies made in other countries and show them in Canada. That was their first impulse. They didn't think, oh, here's this new invention. I think it's going to be like the next big thing. So let's buy an Edison camera and make our own movies here in Canada and show them to Canadians. This was not their first impulse. And it just dawned on me that, you know, like any kind of new technology, uh, especially one that I think you think has a future, well, you want to get in on the ground floor. And around this time, it was 1895, uh, this is like the official start of the movies. And there was a film studio built in, in France, that was actually the first one. There was other eventually in the US, of course and in other countries and their idea was okay we'll build a studio and we'll make movies for our our own country our own uh, consumption they, like you can't imagine americans thinking that okay i uh, will buy some prints from another 
from England or France and showed them in the U.S. I mean, that would be weird to, to think uh, that would happen. Well, it didn't happen. What happened is that they, you know, bought Edison cameras and different film companies sprung up, built studios, and made movies for local, regional, and national consumption. And this was like in the early days. Obviously, it didn't happen right away after, right after Edison uh, invented the camera. It took a couple of years, at least five, ten, whatever. But it got, it happened anyway, eventually, and very early, because like I said, it's a bit of a race, right? So if you want to start an industry, you've got to start and get going now when it's, it's new and fresh. You don't wait 20 years. But that's anyway what happened in Canada. The first, there was a, a studio built here in Canada. I don't want to spoil the, the other chapters, but eventually it was. But it only got made, uh, built in 1918 or 19, if I recall. Almost 20 plus years after the invention of movies. And after everybody else in the world almost had their own studios. 20 years. That's a long time. And now you like it's like a race. So if you're, you know, if you spend like 20 minutes uh, behind the starter line doing God knows what, and everybody else is, you know, has started the, the race already, and it's been 20 minutes, well, you're going to need a whole lot of time to catch up and uh, effort. And there comes a point where you just can't catch up because you started so late. And that's the, that is the, I think, perfect analogy here that we waited so long to get going that eventually we just, when, you know, the movies really caught on and became a worldwide phenomenon. It was, and it was like the thing, the cultural product of the day, of the century, really. We were already 20 years late building a studio and having an industry. So this is what kind of hit me when I first read this chapter. And uh, it just, like I said, my own comment on it. The author doesn't really bring this up, but that's struck me as one of the reasons that, uh, well, there was some problems. And we'll see what those problems are in more detail in the next chapters. Chapter 2, The Early Years When movies began to tell stories, American film producers got their talent from theatrical traditions like vaudeville, the stage, magic acts, and etc. But Canada had no such tradition. And it was in those early years of the 20th century that many Canadians that could have helped develop a native industry emigrated to the U.S. and helped build that up. Most of the names of those people might be obscure now, but back in the day, they were famous. People like Mary Pickford, Jack Warner of Warner Brothers Studio fame, Louis B. Mayer, head of MGM Studios, Max Sennett, Faye Ray, the girl in the original King Kong, Walter Houston, the father of John Houston, born in Toronto. Uh, as a side note here, for people who do live in Toronto, uh, you could go to this neighborhood called Cabbage Town, and there is a plaque in front of the house where he was born. So it's kind of nice that they remembered him, but I, the plaque is necessary because, I guess, unless you're not a cinephile, you wouldn't know who Walter Houston is, but it's kind of nice that uh, they bothered to put a plaque in there. So next time you're in Cabbage Town, take a look. And when movies uh, were made in Canada at the time, between, let's say, 1900 to 1910, there were travel shorts about the Canadian landscape and movies made by the Canadian Pacific Railroad to entice immigrants to settle in a, to the Canadian West. With a few exceptions, uh, these films were made by a variety of cameramen from the U.S. Uh, and British companies. 
And this is where the image of Canada as a frozen but picturesque land started. An image as stated by the author, here I quote, As it was, Hollywood's image of Canada quickly became the world's image, and, it might be argued, Canada's image of itself, unquote. Prior to World War I, some Canadian film production companies sprang up, but most of them produced just a few movies and then disappeared. As mentioned, the CPR, Canadian Pacific Railroad, produced a lot of travel films, but the technicians were always Americans, and uh, this is a recurring theme of Canadian film industry or film history, uh, that there is a bias against Canadians working on Canadian projects. This uh, team, quote-unquote, will pop out uh, frequently during this history, and if it doesn't pop out, I'll make sure it does. Chapter 3, The Years of Promise. Quote, If Canadian stories are worthwhile making into films, Hollywood companies will be sent into Canada to make them, unquote, by Louis Selznick. In the 1910s, there was a strong desire in the country to have a domestic film industry. As a result of this attitude, Canadian newsreels appeared. Canadian newsreels showed Canadian content with footage taken from other international footage. Now, here I have to stop, I guess, and explain what a newsreel is, uh, because this is pretty old stuff. Uh, back in the day before television, uh, TV news, uh, the people got their news, uh, at least of the world, through newsreels that they saw in movie theaters. So when they paid to see a specific movie, uh, they were usually given a newsreel before the start of the movie. And newsreels were basically just film production companies that hired cameramen and that just specialized in filming events around the world that was apparently newsworthy, like coronations and funerals and natural disasters and sometimes just basically interesting sites that people couldn't see back then because travel was not that fast or easy or cheap. So sometimes they would go in with the crews would go and they make like almost like a travel log, you know, even take pictures of Niagara Falls because not everybody, even in Canada, got to see that first. Um, so, but this, these people will just go around around the world and they would all shoot these uh, different things it would be put together into a newsreel of five ten minutes and with intertitles between the, the each shot to explain what was going to be seen and that's how people got to see the news uh, before tv and like uh, the author says uh, canadians saw footage of canada but along with other international footage now in a way it seems kind of obvious to do this now, but back then, this was like an innovation. And this mix was so popular that Hollywood newsreels copied it too. Obviously, Americans having their own newsreel companies. So they ended up mixing American news with Canadian news. And because of this appropriation, Canadian newsreels companies did not survive the war. Afterwards, newsreels shown in Canada were foreign controlled. Aside from the newsreels, uh, no fewer than three dozen film companies were created between 1914 and 1922, and fewer than half of them made anything. There was a problem with stock promotion deals, which basically is selling stock in film companies, with the promoters cashing in and then leaving without having done anything, 
Again, to kind of explain what this is, is that back in the day in Canada, in order to fund your movie, either your newsreel or even your regular dramatic movie, you can go to the bank. Uh, the banks would have laughed at you if you, you know, formed your own film company and asked them for a loan to uh, to make a movie or fund your studio. Uh, this was not going to be in Canada. So the government wasn't involved either. And so there wasn't really anything left unless you were basically, you were like a millionaire, you could have done it yourself, I suppose, but nobody did. And there was no, there was nothing else, basically. So the only way to f raise funds for movies was to go around and lock on doors, kind of doing it the old-fashioned way, and ask people to subscribe or you know buy a share in your film company. Then you accumulate all that money, and then you get a certain fund because you have a kind of a budget. And once you reach it, then you make the movie, and then if the movie is successful, people will get a certain percentage of the profits and so on. It's kind of an early kind of go fund, go fund me kind of thing. Except this was like the old-fashioned way; it was literally going door to door. And a lot of Canadians were keen to invest in Canadian films back then, but they were only only ended up being cheated out of their money time and time again. So this was one problem. And the other problem, as the author states, is that there was no single major production center in Canada. There were film companies, of course, but they were all across the country. There was in St. John, Sydney, Trenton, Toronto, and so on, Winnipeg, even Ottawa. There was no like centralized film production like there was in the U.S., like in Hollywood and other countries had their own specific place where they would create movies or in the studios and so on. For some reason, Canada didn't do that. It's not explained why. Uh, and like the author states, it was not a way to build a stable industry. And other countries were doing the exact opposite, centralizing movie production. So this and other problems kind of explains the kind of a lack of the of a general film industry back then. In and around 1919, after World War I, there was a great desire for Canada to have its own film industry, and even the Canadian newspapers, once hostile to movies, were promoting the idea in their opinion columns. In British Columbia, there was even a, there was a debate in the legislation about the excessive domination of Hollywood in Canada. How about that? Of course, in the end, the people who ended up taking advantage of this pro-Canadian attitude were the stock promoters. A man called Harold Binney was one of those promoters. He was 29 years old and he was an American, and he arrived in Toronto in 1918. He was scheduled to produce a feature. Some uh, Toronto residents paid money to finance the movie. Even students at the University of Toronto were hired into spending their summers selling the movie and the uh, and movie stock to friends and, and relations. Of course, the movie was never made. Benny left Toronto and was heard of no more. Another promoter was J. Arthur Nelson, who did the same thing in Victoria, B.C. He promoted a Canadian movie that was never made and was heard of no more. And there was another guy called George Brownbridge, fast-talking Toronto distributor and promoter, who, as we will see, had more follow-through, so to speak, in getting films made in Canada than the other stock promoters. It's around this time that a film studio, an actual film studio, in, was built in Trenton, Ontario. Why Trenton? 
that's a mystery. There was a company called Canadian National Features that built the studio, and the owner was George Brownbridge. And Brownbridge, his appeals for funds rested on the patriotic grounds that we mentioned, because he said that, quote, American distributors were taking millions of dollars per year out of the Dominion, unquote. Dominion here being Canada, of course. And the story of the activities of the Threatened Studios offers considerable insight into the patterns of Canadian film production and into the problems that beleaguered Canadian filmmakers back then. Brownbridge made trips to New York where he signed contracts with American directors and actors. Of course, can't have Canadians making Canadian films. So he made a first feature, but suddenly, uh, before the second feature was completed, his company ran out of cash. The assets at the bankruptcy hearings mentioned $79,000 plus the cost of the studio and the film made. But what had happened to the rest of the 278000 that was invested in the company? Hmm. Brownbridge came back a year later and made two more features, neither of which added up to much. In the meantime, another Canadian company called Pan American Film Corporation took possession of the Triton Studio in January 1918. It planned to produce, quote, photo plays of the Canadian Northwest and its mounted police and newsreels. But guess what? The company's only release was a 10-minute rural comedy short, and despite promises of a new release every two weeks, Pan American Film Corp. quietly folded. Meanwhile, Brownbridge had a new idea. The production of dramatic shorts sponsored by commercial companies. He only produced one short film in this matter, a single drama for the Canadian Chewing Gum Company. But still, this ended up bringing back Brownbridge into the feature film production game. Brownbridge then approached a CPR, Canadian Pacific Railroad, with an idea for another short film. The Canadian Pacific Railroad instead suggested a feature about the Red Menace. At the time, the Bolsheviks, or later communists, were seen to be a threat to the world, and the CPR wanted to make a drama about their infiltration into labor unions. This was a movie subject that was very popular at the time. So Brownbridge got funds together for this project from the CPR and others. He went back to the thrift studio and shot the film there. The filming took six weeks and cost $86,000. Brownbridge went where for a crew? Well, of course, New York, to hire the crew and the actor. The one interesting note about the star of the movie was that the star was someone called Tyrone Power in his very first movie role. Cinephiles of, and people who know old Hollywood will know who Tyrone Power is. He was an old-fashioned kind of major Hollywood star of the 40s. And uh, but not because of this movie, <laughs> later on. Uh, the movie got decent reviews, but did not do so well in the USA, as there had already been lots of films on the same subject. There were other projects uh, scheduled for the Britain studio, but nothing came of it. And by the fall of 1920, Brownbridge was in financial difficulties again. Uh, the financial failure of Brownbridge's film company did much to sour Canadian investors in the Canadian film industry. After this failure, Brownbridge's career as a movie promoter in Canada was at an end. 
1930, he was operating a film distribution company in New York. But Brownbridge had still under the eye there. He wanted to sell the Dretton studio to the Ontario government for its Motion Picture Bureau. The Ontario Motion Picture Bureau was a film division within the government that produced films for government propaganda. The government agreed, and the studio was sold to them. And the stage was set, as they say, for another sad chapter in the Canadian film industry, the making of its biggest flop, a movie called Carry On, Sergeant. Again, Brownbridge was involved in in an indirect way. He was sent to New York by the Ontario government to negotiate for the Bureau's movies to get American theatrical release. He recommended a contract for worldwide distribution with the firm of Cranfield and Clark. And what the government didn't know at the time was that this company was not well set up and would collapse in bankruptcy within two years. But anyway, a contract was signed in 1926 and a branch office was opened in Toronto. Clark began to promote Canadian film production because he sensed that there was Canadian resentment of Hollywood films focused on war films. The reason being that uh, the British and the Canadians were annoyed at uh, the Americans was that although the U.S. had entered the war only in 1917, that is the First World War, of course, the world was flooded with films depicting only the American involvement in the victory. And because of that climate, the Prime Minister at the time, Arthur Meehan, made a speech urging the production of Canadian films. The Premier of Ontario at the time also promised the cooperation of the government if such a Canadian war film could be made. And this involved lending the Trenton studio for the production. For all these reasons, Clark of the firm, Cranfield and Clark, incorporated a company called British Empire Films of Canada in June 1927 in order to make a war movie. The war movie in question was called Carry On, Sergeant, about the Canadian forces at Wypress in 1915, standing their ground while others fled a patriotic war movie for Canadians. The author was not Canadian, but it was a British author called Bruce Bairn's father. He had first written a short story called Carry On Sergeant. That was the story that the film would be based on. He also was supposed to direct the film, and it made sense to use his name to raise funds since he was known and popular at the time. His writing credentials were excellent, but He had actually never directed a movie before, so of course he was chosen to direct the movie. With a famous author making the rounds of fundraising, money flowed in and the movie started filming in November 1927. Barron's father was not an experienced director, but instead of being humble and taking advice from technicians and people who knew about filmmaking, he ignored everyone, and this led to considerable wasted. Even the actors and the personnel that were were hired by Barron's father had no actual film experience, just like him. The movie was finally given its premiere in Toronto in November 10, 1928. The public response was strong, but the critics were mixed. There was some controversy about a scene in the movie, 
where a soldier gave in to temptation in France. This seemed to outrage the uh, easily outraged Canadian critics at the time. Other war movies had similar scenes, but because this was a Canadian movie, it was seen to be an insult to the army. And because of this, there was talk that the movie was to be removed from distribution. The rumors did not help the box office. Some people believed that, quote, American interests, unquote, were behind the rumors because, like, unquote again, they would naturally desire to see their own pictures continue to control the Canadian market, unquote. American interests here meant Famous Players Canadian Corporation, which was controlled by Americans. It's hard to say if this was all true, but after a few runs in Montreal and some Ontario towns, the movie Carry On Sergeant disappeared from view. The company that produced the film went bankrupt. Clark had already left Canada and was heard of no more. The Ontario government, which had lent the company the threatened studio for the film, repossessed the studio and went back to making documentaries and travelogues. The Tretton studio spurted on until October 1934. Afterwards, when they stopped making movies, it was donated to the town and became a community center. After this and other failures, along with the lackluster performance of the movies that did get made, Canadian investors lost confidence in the industry. Canadian newspapers switched from advocation for Canadian industry to praising Hollywood movies that included Canadian content. Then, in the 20s, Hollywood began to consolidate its power by taking over exhibition and production, not just in the U.S., but in Canada. As an example of this, the Canadian-owned Allen Theatre chain was taken over by Famous Players Canada, even though Famous Players Canada was actually smaller, but it had American money behind it. When the Allen chain overextended itself, it went into bankruptcy and was then taken over by Famous Players for very little money. After that, Famous Players had complete control over the exhibition of movies in Canada, and since it was controlled by Americans, well, guess what they showed in those movie theaters? This takeover probably set the stage, so to speak, for the general takeover of Canada by Hollywood. That's the end of episode one. Next time, we will continue with the early history of Canadian film. If you have any comments about the podcast, you can reach the NFP at the following email, nfpcan at protonmail.com. That's nfpcan at protonmail.com. Dot com. Bye for now.